Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Hello from Washington and a happy new year. I'm Chuck Todd and this is the Chuck Todd cast. So this week, our friends at the Eurasia Group released uh, its top risks report for 2024 and described a quote, geopolitical minefield with three dominant conflicts. The United States versus Russia, Israel versus Hamas, and the United States versus itself. That last one, they think, is the number one risk. And I'm joined now by Eurasia Group's founder and President Ian Bremmer, who says that during this year's election, the U.S. democracy will be tested to a degree it hasn't experienced in 150 years, and that our credibility will be, quote, quote undermined on the world stage. Um, just to give you an idea of what other risks... Uh, Ian put out there. We're going to focus really only on two or three, but Ian, let me put them all out there sure. for people to get. Um, so you have the political system, the Mideast, partitioned Ukraine, ungoverned AI, artificial intelligence. It's going to be, a, we, we already saw sort of the the first impact in Argentina. We'll see more of it in politics. The axis of rogues, Russia, North Korea, Iran, Ukraine, Israel, and potentially Taiwan. No China recovery on the economy, a fight for critical minerals, no room for error on inflation. Don't forget El Nino and the impact on the climate and then the culture wars. So, Ian, let's start with um, let's start with the American election, because the American election is so intertwined. I mean, let's just take what are the what what right now are the two greatest are the two things that Joe Biden wakes up and worries about every day. Believe it or not, it's not Donald Trump and his re-election. It's Ukraine and Israel. Um, a Trump election dramatically changes um, the future of the Palestinians and the future of the Ukrainians, no? Yes. Yeah. Yes, very much. Look, if, if you're, um, you know, a, a pilot of a plane and, you know, you bring somebody else in and it's, you know, Beautiful skies, 40,000 feet, uh, clear flying for the next couple of hours. You probably don't really worry about that transition. Uh, if you're trying to land a plane with very little fuel in a storm and no visibility, and then you bring in a completely volatile uh, and untrusted pilot, it's a very different environment for you and the passengers of the plane. And that's what we're talking about here. Uh, we're, we're talking, I mean, when Trump was president the first time around, the geopolitical environment was vastly more stable. Um, there, there weren't, there wasn't, weren't, there were no significant wars during the four years that Trump was president. Uh, there are major global crises that are getting worse uh, on the stage today, uh, and you just let me ask you this. Yeah. yeah, let me ask you this: hmm? Is that a coincidence that Trump becomes president, and now we have we are now living in one of the more unstable? You know, I, I'm. I don't think it's zero. I don't think there's zero impact of Trump's tenure as president to our current uh, instability around the world. Well, it's funny when you asked if there was a coincidence. I wasn't sure which way you were going. 
Mm-hmm. Because you could have asked me that question and said, well, I mean, you know, Biden becomes president. He's supposed to be the foreign policy hand in these two major wars. I mean, Trump is obviously going to run on that. No wars under me. And it is certainly true that if you look at the Middle East, I mean, Trump's perspective is uh, when Iran was engaged in shenanigans, um, mm-hmm. I ordered the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and they stopped and so they wouldn't be pulling this and Hamas wouldn't get the kind of support from Iran and the Houthis wouldn't be hitting the Red Sea if I was president, because that would be the end of them. That's what that's what Trump would say. And by the way, Chuck, there is some logic in this really tough guy madman theory that they're going to watch out because they don't know how just how bad I'll hit them. And he'll say that about Putin, too, with Ukraine. But uh, I don't think that causality holds a full argument for me. Um, I I think that these wars have been coming for a long time. So if you think about Russia, Ukraine, uh, it started in 2014 and the lack of global leadership in responding to Russia, the, uh, the, the complacency, I mean, even European heads of state traveling to Moscow, meeting with Putin during the World Cup while Russia was occupying Ukraine, didn't really care. So that's a message that has been in place and growing for 10 years. And Putin thinking, I can just get away with this because there isn't because the U.S. isn't going to be the global policeman. Look at Afghanistan. Look at the way they failed. You think they're going to care about Ukraine, which is obviously mine. Um, And in the case of the Middle East, I mean, I would focus on. The uh, Abraham Accords, which were success of the Trump administration, I'd focus on Saudi um, normalization with Israel, which was coming under the Biden administration. I'd focus on uh, Saudi-Iran UAE normalization, which was facilitated by Xi Jinping, and the fact that the Palestinians um, were increasingly not only ignored, but were going to be ignored in an environment where everything else has basically resolved and the people are moving on. Um, and so, no, I, I don't, as someone who focuses a lot on the rest of the world, mm-hmm. um, I, I would say that what's happening is that you have a geopolitical recession. The, the institutions that we have are increasingly not aligned with the balance of power realities of the global order. Those institutions are eroding. They are not being reformed. They are not as effective um, and the willingness of the United States and ability to stand up to change those things is low and no one else can take America's place. And th- that's why you're seeing a power vacuum right. and you're seeing greater confrontation and conflict as a consequence. But let's be, I mean, let's just go further here. Donald Trump doesn't believe in this American-led world order. Not at all. I mean, no. I mean, so we are, this is the first time that we are going to have an American election where the world knows well, let's see. If it goes one way, America goes one way. And if it goes another way, um, you know, America's the world police. And it's, I mean, we, I mean, literally, it does feel as if we're at that kind of crossroads. And, and I don't know, really, not since the 1930s have the two parties been this divided. That's right. On America's role in the world. That's right. Well, Biden believes in that role of the United States, but he can't get it done. Um, right. and, and, and in part that is because of internal divisions in the U S and in part, it's the nature of the global order today. Um, and, and Trump, uh, you know, absolutely doesn't believe in it. And, and, you know, this is one of the interesting things, you know, if I, I go around the world and I talk to all these leaders, um, you know, and, including leaders of all the key U S allies and, and they're enormously concerned 
about the state of U.S. democracy. They're enormously concerned about what might happen if Trump becomes president. But you see the same thing happening as you see among Republicans inside the United States, which is they are very reluctant to air that concern. They're very reluctant to state plainly that U.S. democracy is in trouble and if Trump wins, uh, it could be the end of NATO. If Trump wins, that the world is not going to- What's the to calculation get- on not uttering that? Uh, very similar to the calculation of lots of Republicans that can't stand Trump is what happens if he wins and then we're going to have to work with this guy. So, I mean, it, unfortunately, you have a whole bunch of people that are making relatively narrow- short-term calculations about their political interest, their national interest, that at the end of the day facilitates a sense of the inevitable that makes it much more, it's a collective action problem, makes it much more likely that you get Trump. Because you and I both know, Chuck, you just saw yesterday that um, Esper, the former Secretary of Defense under Trump, said that reelecting Trump would be a severe danger to democracy. Now, in a in a functioning democracy, uh, that would be pretty important. Um, I mean, the idea that the former president did everything in his power to try to prevent a free and fair transition, a peaceful transition of power to Biden after an election, um, that is that's an existential risk to democracy. In any functional democracy, that would be the single top issue in the election. Uh, it is not in the it United could- States. In fairness, I mean, look, I do think we're going to go through different phases of this campaign. Yeah. And I do think in the last 60 days of this campaign, it's going to be about Donald Trump. And it's going to be about democracy. I do. I I take your point that in this moment, it's not the, the forefront. But, I mean, there is a – we sort of have a history that we, you know, as Americans, we focus, but we always focus late. I'm going to push back. Okay. I, I think that that is going to be the focus for Biden. And I think that will be the focus for a lot of people that will are committed to vote for Biden no matter what. Mm-hmm. I do not think that will be the focus for the majority of people in the United States, either those who choose not to vote, those who aren't sure who to vote for, or those who vote for Trump. And that is clearly – that those three groups together are a clear majority in the country. So I, I'll take the other side of that. You, you know, we don't know. Okay. So what do you think? I mean, why, why do you why – do uh, I mean, I just look at the rhythms of this campaign. I look at sort of the rhythm of how Americans are tuning in. I think Americans are, are, are unfortunately uh, d- wanting to tune out right now, right? We, we can sort of feel it, see it. It's been that way for almost a year. Um, and when they have to focus, they'll focus. But I also believe that the, the voices of Liz Cheney, Mark uh, Esper, these folks that are going to be sounding these alarms, I think it is going to be the concentrated focus of the last yeah. 60 days. So I'll tell you why I don't if believe If it that. isn't, yeah. why don't you believe that? What yeah, do you for two, two reasons. Uh, the first reason is because when Trump gets the nomination, uh, and, and we don't know that for a fact 100%, but it seems overwhelmingly likely, that he will become far more powerful immediately. And that so many voices that right now are wavering or occasionally offering some light but veiled criticism will become loyalists for Trump. So he will have the Republican Party full-throated behind him. He will have the media on the right full-throated behind him, the headlines, the money. And I think that changes from the, the, the what you have now, which is, yeah, some voices like Esper and Cheney, but a whole bunch of people out there that aren't 
banging the drum every day saying Trump's our guy and we're supporting what he's going to do. It's going to go back to a much more partisan environment. That's the first point. Mm -hmm. Second point is that that will happen in an environment where Americans absolutely do not agree on basic facts. Basic facts about Biden's fitness to run compared to Trump. Uh, Basic facts as to nature of the investigations slash witch hunt uh, against Trump and or Hunter Biden as comparable or worse. I mean, when you lose the basic ability to talk about facts, you can no longer have um, a functional and you, you, you follow a lot of global elections. Give me an example uh, of, a, of a country recently where when they were arguing facts, the country was in one direction. And now that basically they have successfully created a, a misinformation environment that it went another direction. Um, well, the most obvious uh, would be Hungary. Mm-hmm. Um, Turkey has a lot of this right now. I mean, two countries that have been functional democracies with reasonably free media. Um, you know, Hungary, uh, obviously, also authoritarian regime before uh, under East Bloc, but was was transitioning uh, as mm-hmm. as well as many other Eastern European countries, and then didn't. Its institutions weren't strong enough, and fell victim um, to uh, to that. Um, you could make that argument. Um, in, uh, uh, in, 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 uh, Brazil, uh, mm-hmm. that we're on a path of that transition just had January 8th, um, in Brazil. And, uh, they had a whole bunch of big events about trying to ensure that support for democracy and Lula and many other political parties and Brazil's easier to defend because unlike the United States, where you have only two parties that matter in Brazil, there are a bunch so you you have your president, but he still isn't able to like dominate the discourse with a single party. He's got to you know work with a coalition in Congress, and yet you know the opposition just didn't show up for any of that, and they're still behind Bolsonaro, and they still believe that he's the legitimate president. And this is coming back, so you know this is a danger. But but I I I do think I mean I'm you asked me to come up with examples, and I'm giving you small countries. Uh, Brazil's a big country, but still not a super wealthy country. I'm not giving you any G7 countries, no, yeah. no rich advanced democracies. And that's, it's kind of interesting that in, in this year of all of these elections, the United States is the only advanced democracy that is truly presently in crisis. Not, none of the others are. There are no other rich democracies that are facing an inability to have a free and fair legitimized transition of power. Let me stay on the G7 moment a minute yeah um as unpopular as joe biden is isn't he got better approval ratings than most of the g7 leaders uh he's uh doing better than uh schultz is uh right mm-hmm. now in germany better than sunak better, well Su- <laughs> yeah, i know you sunak. and i we all yeah, aaron <laughs> Rodgers is a higher approval rating than sunak I yeah mean, you know in jimmy kimmel's household yeah right i think aaron Rodgers. absolutely is a uh better than, than macron better yeah. than kishida you see where I'm going here? No, no I what do. do you, I what do. do you make of this? Well, what do you uh, make of this? Well, a, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the United States, the two-party system. Um, and so, I mean, in countries where you have to form coalitions, 
Um, you can have low approval ratings. It doesn't stop you from being able to win again because you're going to put the same party structure in place. So Germany would be an example of that, for example. Japan is a one-party democracy. The LDP wins. So when Kishida leaves, it will be a different faction from within his own liberal democratic party. So there's actually no threat um, in that way. So I'm, I'm not uh, – I'm pushing back – uh, not because your point isn't interesting. It's useful to say that there are more people that support Biden than support yeah. these other countries. But the nature of the American democracy makes right. it far more vulnerable to this problem. Well, I, and I look, and I agree, but I'm, I'm get, I want to get at something here, which is, you know, we, we people have been trying to figure out, is there a model for re-election for Biden? Yeah. Meaning, like, can you be this unpopular and win? And the person I keep coming back to is actually Macron. Now, Macron won re-election against a Trump-like candidate, yep. a Trump-like threat, Correct. arguably, um, not because people liked him, but because the French public feared the alternative. Um, is that a model for Biden? Of is course. that a model worth trying of to course. emulate here? Absolutely. I mean, is that, yeah? Now, and by the way, let me push. I want One other thing I wanted to say is that there are uh, major leaders in democracies that are performing far, far better than Biden. Uh, they just don't happen to be G7 democracies. Modi, very clearly. AMLO, very clearly. Uh, Joko in Indonesia, very clearly. These are big countries. Right. They just don't happen to be rich countries. So it's not like <laughs> democracy as a model is broken everywhere. And in Europe, the consequences are so much lower, even if a country turns hybrid, because the EU is so stable. And there are EU elections going this year that will return the same party coalition, more or less, that you've had for the last five. And von der Leyen will be able to be the president of the EU yet again. So uh, again, I, I think the US is historically vulnerable and mm -hmm. geographically contextually vulnerable in ways that are not yet fully appreciated, um, mm -hmm. certainly in the US media space. Um, I, I think that if you made me bet right now, mm -hmm. uh, I would say uh, Trump is going to 60, 40 likely to win. And mm -hmm. I have relatively low confidence about that outcome. Um, mm -hmm. There's so much that can happen over the coming year. So I absolutely think that Biden can win. And I think that the right strategy for Biden is to focus on the existential threat to U.S. Right. democracy. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that. there's any I don't think there's any usefulness in promoting his own record anymore. I know they think that it's they sad in the it, sense it, that he's it, accomplished a lot, but, but I completely it, agree with you, Chuck. It's going nowhere. And that isn't what you're going to do to get people to vote. Right. You know, the, you're going to have to, you're going to have to point out, point out the threat. Um, let's talk about the fact that it's so obvious that a Trump victory is good for Putin, good for Xi, good for Iran, good for a lot of people. So that means that sounds like a lot of unofficial super PACs. Uh, that could be helping Donald Trump. I mean, what kind of role do you think the Chinese and the Russians want to play here? And because there is a penalty for getting caught being a little too cute by this. So I got to push back a little bit again. It's kind of funny. Like, yeah, I'm. A, I agree with the general. Um, no, that's why you're here. Presumption I mean, of yeah, the question. Right. That, that's but, the whole point. Like, I want to go big, and you go small. No, right? no, no. That's the, and in a good way. I, mean, I, I know. I get it. I get, I'm just. I, I. There are lots of American adversaries that uh, who benefit from chaos on the global stage mm -hmm. that really want Trump to win. Interestingly, China is not one of them. 
You don't think that? No, no. in fact, I know that. Um, I, I just got back from a trip to Beijing. I met with the senior leadership there, not Xi Jinping, but lots of others very close to him. Um, and, and I was very surprised with how much more they are worried about Trump this time around than back in 2016 when they're thinking, ah, he's a businessman, he's transactional, we can cut a deal with him. And, you know, beginning of the Biden administration as well, Biden's pretty tough. You know, he's, he's, he's making it harder on technology, export controls, all this stuff. But they don't, they are worried about what a truly chaotic and divided United States will mean in this global environment. They're worried about what it will mean for is it little things like they don't want to have like they love the fact that the U.S. does the dirty work? Yeah, basically, the U.S. is willing to be the world's cop, and they don't want to play world. And cop and, and they're very happy to blame the United right. States when we're hypocrites and when we do things wrong and all this. But they they have no. But they want us on that, that role. They want us on that. And, and they also want the United States to you know be a, a, a you know a functional, relatively stable economy too. And and they they worry about what can happen if the U.S. devolves into red versus blue. I mean, they are easily as concerned about the nature of U.S. democracy in terms of the functional political stability of the U.S. as the Canadians are. And that, that that's that's pretty interesting. But completely, Chuck, you are okay. on the Russians, on the Iranians, on the North right. Koreans, you are completely right. And right. those are countries that have the ability to, to mess with, to create chaos in the U.S. a little bit, right? All right. Well, let me drill down on China here for a minute because there's a pretty important election this month in yeah. Taiwan. Next week. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I if Henry Kissinger were alive and advising Xi, and he knew that Xi's goal was to reunite Taiwan, you could make an argument. You look around right now at the United States; they're struggling to 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 fulfill their commitments to Ukraine. They're the the the, the majority party is divided about how to how to fulfill its commitment to Israel. You really want to throw a monkey wrench. Uh, and, and, and probably grab Taiwan now No way. without U.S. I mean, I'm just I'm throwing it out there. Why wouldn't she make this the moment that he went and grabbed Taiwan? Uh, there are a bunch of reasons. Uh, okay. Perhaps the most important one is just how badly uh, the Chinese economy is presently performing. Um, and uh, if if Taiwan were to get hit. Uh, and TSMC, the semiconductor uh, superpower, is destroyed, uh, China is in a very severe financial crisis immediately. Um, so number one, and, 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 and Xi Jinping just gave a, a public speech on the, on the back of their economic party plenum where he said, I, I, I recognize that you know, Chinese citizens are not, are not all as confident, not doing as well economically as they need to be, and I have to address that. So, I mean, China's not a democracy, but he is still, to a degree, very accountable to the Chinese people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we saw that with the with the fu the fundamental uh, change on zero COVID to everybody gets COVID, you know, sort of a year ago. So that's one reason. Um, a second reason is because China's military is comparatively untested, certainly against set against the model of Russia. And when the Russians invaded Ukraine, they performed vastly worse than Putin expected. Um, and China is facing a much more difficult military fight because it is a hundred miles away. Uh, there's, it's a, it's, you know, it's across the water. It's a hell of a lot harder to do right. that kind of maritime, um, invasion. 
Uh, and that's why the Chinese came to APEC in San Francisco, met with Biden, and despite getting very little in return, said, look, we just want to, we want stability in this relationship right now. We want, we want to find a way to normalize this. There's just- And this is all about domestic economic concerns. This is right overwhelmingly now. about domestic economic concerns in China right now. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right, Chuck, that, that, um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the United States. But, uh, you know, antipathy towards China is still one of the few things that you regularly get bipartisan agreement on. Right. No, I, I think it would be a high risk of his, but I could understand him looking. I could see them looking at our current landscape and thinking, hey, they're pr- this is Taiwan's best friend is really vulnerable yeah. right now. That, no, and that, Kissinger that, did go um, to China. It was one of the last trips he made when he was 100 years old, and he spent five mm-hmm. hours with Xi Jinping uh, as opposed to three um, that uh, that Biden and she had. Which it's was, amazing, isn't it? Well, in, in fact, I mean, I, I, there was one Politburo member that I met with in China, and uh, and during our meeting, it was like a two and a half hour meeting, private yeah. meeting. Uh, he gets a note that Kissinger has just died. That happened in the meeting, While you and, were there. and so he just immediately we we you know he asked if we'd all stand and have a moment of silence because I mean this guy you know Kissinger was like a, a member of family from the Chinese perspective, sure, um, and and he he said um, that uh, that you know that Xi Jinping um, took very seriously uh, Kissinger's advice, and it was there was advice on Taiwan, and that advice was absolutely do everything possible to ensure. Uh, that the status quo can remain um, in in this environment. And that doesn't stop them from saying, we'll go to war if you ever declare independence. Doesn't stop them saying that we must reunify, all these things. Uh, but, but in this environment, Kissinger's advice, um, I think, was very, very welcomed in Beijing. I'm going to pause there. We'll be back with more from Ian Bremmer. We'll talk Ukraine and the future of that country's war after the break. The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, let's move to the other rogue actors here. Putin, Iran, North Korea. They're going to want to play roles in our election. They're going to do different things here. Um, How aggressive do you expect them to be? I mean, is this in how how much do they really want a Trump victory? Well, um, I think that Putin in particular benefits massively from a Trump victory. I think North Korea... Uh, on balance, would really like a Trump victory, but don't. It's not as clear. Uh, and I think that the Iranians, 
Uh, I, I, I think that the great Satan remains the great Satan in any environment. Um, but, but Putin is the key point here. He's the key point, first of all, because he's the one that has shown the greatest willingness, even though he hasn't spent much money on it, to attempt to interfere um, in the U.S. Uh, political transition uh, previously um, and in all sorts of other domestic political affairs of the Europeans. Um, and uh, it's interesting, when you talk to U.S. intelligence leaders they will tell you that they are more worried um, about uh, the U.S. election and its vulnerability uh, to manipulation uh, than they are pretty much anything else out there. Right. Well, now. the public has never been so less trustworthy anyway. Right. So I feel like like it's one of those the tinders really you know the tinders really dry out there. You know, it doesn't take much to to get Americans to turn on themselves. It's a really it's a really attractive target. It's a complex target. Uh, it is very hard to defend from a homeland security perspective compared to, say, critical infrastructure or compared to, you know, sort of the banking system, this sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think there is a real vulnerability um, that there will be messing with, as it were, the U.S. election. And I also think there's a real vulnerability to, you know, a more traditional uh, I mean, terrorist attacks um, yeah. around, worried, you know, balloting. That, I mean, that. and that—that's yeah. not just a Russia issue. That's a—that's mm -hmm. a Middle East issue. That's a, you know, fallout from Israel, uh, Palestine, Hamas uh, mm -hmm. issue. This is—it's—it's it's very hard to imagine that that this election process, given the stakes, given the level of division and dysfunction, is going to go off smoothly. It's very right. hard to imagine that. No, it's going to be violent. The question is how violent. Right. I mean, I hate to put it that way, right? Right. It's like, how violent is it going to be? Is it just going to be small scuffles or or, or something? Well, 2016, uh, 2020, more deadly. The, the, there was the, the violence and the disruptions to the election were, were really at the margins. Uh, the mm -hmm. only thing that really mattered, I, I would not argue, would be the Russian interference. I would say January 6th after the last election. Yeah. That's the only right. thing that was meaningful. Uh, where this time around, I think it's hard to imagine that you won't have some form of meaningful threats in the run-up to the actual election. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu, when, I, I, you know, I feel like any, any day now we're in his last month as prime minister, but we're not yet there. Um, is he going to expand this war to save his job? So uh, I think that he is very interested in doing that. Uh, seems pretty obvious to me that that's what's happening. And yeah. I don't know what Biden's, I mean, well, Biden's got to stop that. Well, Biden just said in the past hours that, you know, privately he's working very hard uh, on the Israelis to try to uh, significantly diminish the fighting in Gaza. Uh, he's been saying that for a while now. Privately. He got a rhetorical, he got a rhetorical announcement from the IDF yesterday, which is helpful. Um. You know, I, it is true that the the IDF has pulled some of the troops out of Gaza, but in part that the read on that could be that they don't want to have a two front war while they have all those troops there, and they're planning on going into the northern front and Hezbollah, and, and certainly that 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 feels to me to be the Netanyahu plan. But but it's not just Bibi; um, it, it's also I mean the entire war cabinet. Uh, Bibi is very unpopular, and and the people, the Israeli people, want him out. But the war cabinet is is uh, and, and how they does Prime Minister Gantz still pursue a Hezbollah strategy? Uh, I, I think it's quite possible he does. Okay. Uh, I, I think that the Iranian uh, Iranian what a, what a Freudian slip the Israeli uh, government 
uh, sees this as their one big opportunity to address the fact that there are a number of rogues in their region who do not recognize Israel's right to exist, and they need to address that security issue. And that includes, at the very least, some level of degradation of Hezbollah's military capabilities and pushing them back from the border in accordance uh, with UN Security Council resolutions that have been passed but are not presently being uh, upheld. Are they trying to – look, if they open up these multi-front wars, they can't win without our help. I don't think they're worried about the United States. Are they trying States. to draw us in? I don't think they're worried about the United States. Well, we're in. Uh, yeah, but when I mean in, I'm talking about like, are we going to start helping them in a hot war? Uh, Meaning like, are we going to be participating in some of these, uh, like we're kind of doing now? Like we're kind of doing know? now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look. Is there going to be more of that? The, the U.S. is providing ongoing military support, and that is going to continue to be true. The U.S. is providing real-time intelligence coordination. That is going to continue to be true. I think it's inconceivable that Biden would cut that off. Um, it's inconceivable. I guess that- when are we at war with Iraq? Because yeah. it feels well, like we are. So we, it we're, feels like we're awfully close. We're in a proxy war with Iran right now. Uh, the United States, right, with what they're doing at the Red Sea and Israel, right, and has, I mean, it does feel like this is a, a, a pretty, pretty direct, I, getting really close. I mean, we're, we're a few steps away from a direct war with Iran. Uh, a, a, a significant step would be uh, opening a broader Hezbollah-Israel war. That would be a significant step. A second significant step would be the Americans uh, targeting uh, direct Houthi bases in Yemen. Um, a, a further step would be uh, significant numbers of American servicemen and women getting killed in the field of battle. I think those are the things, uh, and or some Israeli assassinations against Iranian officials. Those are the three or four steps that I would see that before would occur to, before yeah. we would we might be risking a direct U.S. Iranian war. Yeah. What are we going to do about the Red Sea? I mean, if we're not going to play, this is goes where you know it's always like, is America's the world cop? Well, when it comes to shipping lanes, we are. I mean, at least we have been. And I, I am. Are, are you surprised that we're? Let me ask you this: Are do you expect us to engage? more directly into uh, clearing up that shipping lane or not? Yeah, I do. Uh, But it's been very incremental. Uh, The first attacks from the Houthis were nuisance attacks. They weren't really meant to cause any damage. Uh, And the Americans did very little. And then once a week for the first few weeks, they would do a brushback blow that was not meant to really cause any, any, certainly wasn't meant to cause widespread uh, death and destruction and, and, and keep the Iranians far from it. Then the Houthis stepped up their attacks. Then the Americans responded more aggressively. Then the Houthis mm-hmm. stepped them up again. So, I mean, we've been in this role where it's – it's and the Americans started talking about sanctions and of third-party nations that are helping finance the Houthis and transit, uh, transit mm-hmm. uh, money um, and goods. And then the Americans put together a multilateral um, alliance, a strike force – um, with lots of other countries, though not nothing really in the region, I think, except Bahrain, but, you know, the Europeans and, and the Canadians and others. So, I mean, all the way through, Chuck, the last three months, the United States has made it very clear that uh, they will be 
the poli- the principal policemen for this issue. They've just been, you know, kind of dipping their toe in the water, and now we're up to our ankles, and before mm-hmm. you know it, we're up to our knees, and you know, the water's not fine. The water's not fine. So I, I, I easily see us swimming. Uh, if this continues and swimming with the sharks, if you want me to continue I mean, with this analysis. No, I, I hear you, but it's like, I go, I go back to everything is about making sure the American economy doesn't feel an impact from this. Right. Yeah. Like this is why, like what would motivate Biden to get more aggressive? Wouldn't it be an impact? You know, we saw what a supply chain did to our economy and inflation. Yeah. We're far from that uh, no, right now. So you, right. it's again, same steps because the Red Sea is, is being, almost shut down uh, from from consumer tanker traffic uh but oil they're price, already redirecting traffic around right the horn of Africa, oil prices right? are under 80 um and so it's not actually stopping people from getting the energy they need it's just more expensive um and the americans are producing over 13 million barrels a day uh and uh the saudis and opec as a whole have taken a bunch of production off the market and they recently took prices down a little bit because Consumer demand is not what people were hoping. Uh, and so, you know, there's more flex in the system um, to to respond to a geopolitical challenge in the Middle East. Now, a hot war with the Iranians um, and the Straits of Hormuz shut down, then we're in a global recession. And by the way, th- then Trump's going to win. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, never mind the fact that Biden needs to respond uh, I, I don't know how how Biden wins in an environment where we have a global recession right now that's geopolitically no, driven and that people agree. say he's he's part of the reason for. And that, no. is, that is absolutely plausible in the coming months. It's absolutely plausible. Uh, let's close with Ukraine. Um, I am of the mindset that, that Biden is going to give pretty much whatever it takes on the border to get what he needs for Ukraine. Um, he'll... You know, I, I I feel like that he's just taken longer to get to his to get to that point than I think some of us thought it would take. But he'll eventually get there. Um, is this a war that is still more hot than cold by the end of this calendar year? Yeah, yeah. Um, and remember, Biden wanted ninety billion uh, initially, and uh, what whatever it takes that you just described. And I generally agree with you. I think it's more likely than not he still gets that money eventually. But it's more like 20 to 30 billion, the eventual deal, which will allow the Ukrainians to continue to defend their existing territory, but they won't be able to take anything else back. And the Russians occupy almost a fifth of all of Ukraine. So what we're looking at is Ukraine getting partitioned. And we'll never recognize that as legitimate, and neither will the Europeans and neither will the Ukrainians. But that is the real outcome that we're facing. And and Putin, who has a lot more men that he could throw at this war. And and the Ukrainians, the average age of a new Ukrainian recruit is in the 40s. It was 26 two years ago when the war started. So they are running out of the capacity to continue to fight. And that's going to make Zelensky much more desperate. Uh, and, and even though Biden's going to get as much as he can, is that going to last for more than a year? And that, no one can answer that question. So uh, th- this war does face a turning point now where it no longer looks like the United States can coherently la- you know, lead um, a strong transatlantic alliance to help the Ukrainians get their territory, um, and uh, and that that you know that could start to fragment um, the Europeans, where you have those that are much more hardline in support, understandably, for the Ukrainians, the frontline countries like Finland, 
um, and Sweden and uh, and Poland and and uh, and the Baltic states. Uh, but then you'll have Italy and Spain and Hungary and a few others saying, you know, what what do we what do we do in this for? It's so expensive, and it's never going to go anywhere. And they should just give up the land. And, and you're going to have people start to say that. And of course. Uh, Vivek is saying that, and Trump is saying that, and DeSantis is kind of saying that. Uh, I mean, Nikki Haley is, you know, kind of the the gamely being the the solid, you know, sort of George Bush type conservative here, and mm-hmm. that that is that is not a winning position right now. Yeah. Do you expect a nego- Do you expect any official talks before our election, or do you think that that? In a weird way, both Zelensky and Putin are going to roll the dice on November of 24. I, I think Zelensky, for Zelensky right now, talks are tantamount to surrender. That's what, okay. Uh, That's what and, and so I, I can't see it. And I think the Russians have no interest. They, they think they can get more territory. They can get Odessa. Uh, and, and maybe they can still overthrow Zelensky as everyone else gets, as the Americans and others get tired of this thing. I mean, remember, it's not just about the U.S. election. Middle East war is more of a priority. U.S. division, more of a priority. So, I mean, Ukraine is like a distant number three. You're asking me about Ukraine. Very few people are asking me about Ukraine right now. It, it almost doesn't come up. It annoys me because, you know, it's something I spent a lot of time on historically. Uh, but, I mean, reality is in, in its third year, this war is just not getting the same level of resource or attention, even though the Ukrainians are desperately trying to continue to fight to defend themselves. So um, I, I, I think that, uh, look, we're in an environment where you've got these two major wars going on and President Biden, to go back to what we're discussing at the beginning, uh, you know, is is not looking great in either of them. Uh, the Middle East war, he is stapled to a leader in Israel and to a government in Israel, which isolates the United States on the global stage and is very unpopular within Biden's own Democratic Party, and the war is likely, very likely, to escalate and expand. And in Russia, Ukraine, where Biden did a fantastic job in leading a broad coalition to help defend the Ukrainians for the first year and a half of the war, is now becoming much more driven with dissent and and paralysis on the back of a counteroffensive that failed uh, in Ukraine. (coughs) And, and, and this is neither of these things you want to have happening uh, when, when in an election year. So, I mean, not only if you're Biden, do you not want to run on your record because people don't – it doesn't seem to be working. People don't seem to care about it on the economic side where you've got some successes. But on the foreign policy side, um, your record increasingly doesn't look like something you want to run on. Um, let me close with uh, a little bit of economic forecasting. You know, when we began 23, it was all about can we can the world avoid a recession? Well, the U.S. didn't just avoid a recession. It's it's it was uh, in some ways it was a pretty good year. I mean, it's just a good year economically. You can't look at it now and say it wasn't. Um, it, it is. I know China has a big say in this, but but what's your best understanding of? Are we looking at at least a status quo economy around the world, or, or is it all subject to the entire conversation you and I just had about about global events? Well, for, first, clearly the level of instability 
and the likelihood that other shoes that we're not talking about could drop in this environment. I mean, a year ago, we weren't thinking we're going to be in a major Middle East war. You know, right. two years ago, we weren't thinking we're going to be in a major Russia, Ukraine, European war. Uh, you know, the, 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 the tinder is dry geopolitically as well. Um, and so uh, I, I think that that risk environment is one that um, we ha- has to factor into downside uncertainty uh, in the global economy, um, as well as the fact uh, that uh, inflation continues to be comparatively high, but a lot of countries around the world do not have the fiscal space to continue to provide the stimulus, especially given debt environment, uh, that they did when COVID hit. Uh, and so that will lead. Yeah, to- is this going to be the year everybody's bills come due? Yeah, like, that's exactly. You know, I think there's a it's fair amount of that because there's a state budget. This is something people have been talking about. Yeah. Um, next year, all of these state legislatures and governors are suddenly going to have uh, deficit problems because all of their free money is is gone. Right, yep. all of that free COVID money last year they used unspent COVID money. Right, that's all spoken for. There's no more COVID money, and I have wondered. If we start to see a tightening of the belts at the state level, what does that, yeah. does that become a trickle up? Of yeah, that? I think that's true. It's a good point, Chuck. I wasn't thinking about that, but you're absolutely right. And frankly, I should have put that in the report. Um, and the but, glow, and you, do you see some similarities around the globe? Exactly. Same thing. Yes, yes. Okay. I mean, that, that is that is clearly happening in Brazil, uh, and it's mm-hmm. going to get more challenging for Lula this year as his popularity goes down. That's clearly um, happening in uh, Nigeria. Uh, where they've got a reformist-oriented president, but he's really getting squeezed uh, right now. You're just going to see this play out in a whole bunch of countries um, that it's going to make it harder, even if they're not facing elections, um, just in, in, in their domestic environment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Argentina, how's he doing his first couple of weeks? I mean, he got the IMF happy, right? Yeah, uh, except that there's just such strong and entrenched opposition among the establishment Peronists to -hmm. prevent Malay from taking the more radical economic transformation that's required to make the country fiscally stable. So it's easy to bet against him. And I'm not even talking about like what he's like from a personality perspective, but just just the the, the necessity to move away from Peronism, which has failed uh, the Argentine economy economy so desperately and so repeatedly, I, I, I would, if forced to make a bet, I would say he's not going to succeed in doing that. All right. Ian Bremmer. Well, this was a stress-filled conversation. Yeah, more than usual. Yeah. yeah. True. It didn't make me feel any better. I'm sorry, Chuck. The world's on fire. But happy new year. Yeah. Happy new year. Yeah. Are you uh, Are you? Are you a big 10 fan? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love college football. I watched most of the game, the end of the game last night. That was really fun. Yeah. It was a uh, I I, uh, I I don't know what to think of Harbaugh. <laughs> you know, I do. I, I, I respect him as a – his teams are always prepared. Yeah. The dude wins everywhere he's been. Um, but, you know, he said I, – I, I don't know what to make of him. I don't know whether we should we should uh, tarnish him. I, I don't feel like he cheated, cheated per se. But you're like, why did you have to cut the corner? I don't know. I just I just was enjoying all of these, you know, the running backs, the tight ends, just finding these seams that didn't look like they existed and then going for 40, 50 plus yards repeatedly is incredible. No, it was a it, it was a, a give Michigan looked like an imitation of Alabama. And I say that as a compliment. As a compliment. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, they were physically. Definitely. They were physically there. All right, Mr. Bremer. Okay, Chuck. I'll see you. I'll, I'll see you down the road. Always great to see you, man. Thank you, brother. You've been listening to the Chuck Toddcast. If you've enjoyed the show, you can download it for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Justice Gilpin Green and Elias Miller. This 
well as Matt Rivera. Our theme music composed by Spoke Media. So thanks for listening. Check out for my weekly column on NBCNews.com every Wednesday. It, it shows up there. Uh, and other than that, until we upload again. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.